to episode 113 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 15th of February 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. And we're back with lots to talk about, including your feedback and some Chromebook stuff later on. But let's start with a blog post by Popey recently called Messaging Overload, and it really resonated with me. All the time I have people asking me, oh, join Signal, join Matrix, join Discord. And it just is overwhelming to me. So I wanted to know, do you guys have that? Like, How many messaging services do you use? And how many of them are free and open source? Two. Two? Yeah. See, I'm cantankerous and lazy, and I use Telegram for like the vast majority of it, and I just kind of don't go on other ones so therefore if anybody wants to talk to me they can go on that well so just telegram an email for you <sighs> yeah pretty much i mean i've irc but i don't use it that often anymore um and i've uh family members who do use whatsapp but because i don't have the google play services or use micro g um it doesn't connect and get any push messages so the only time i get messages on whatsapp is when i go off and on my wi-fi network when i go for a walk at night and i'm okay with that that's fine <laughs> how did you install whatsapp then i grabbed the apk off the site ah right yeah interesting but yeah no i know exactly what you mean there's too many and i don't care about them enough and it's just some other silo <laughs> It depends what platform you're talking about, really. I've got Slack, for example, I have to use for work, but there's uh, there's no way that I'm going to be talking to my friends on Slack. The reality is, though, that most people are on WhatsApp, so if you want to boil it down to the absolute bare minimum, then WhatsApp is where it's at, and I don't really want to use WhatsApp. So I've got Telegram and WhatsApp on my phone, and I have uh, Slack on my desktop, and I've got IRC on my desktop, but like failing, I don't really use it anymore. And people will ask, oh, are you on Signal? And, and that's the main alternative to Telegram that people I talk to seem to use. Um, but I just can't be asked. I've got Telegram, and I'm perfectly happy with that. So, yeah, I think ultimately if you want to talk to your parents or your auntie or something, then you're going to have to use WhatsApp. But for everything else, the people that I want to talk to are all on Telegram. Now you just mentioned it, I forgot I do have Slack for work, but I don't use the Electron app because it's a pig of how many gigabytes of memory. So I use it in a tab in a browser, and if I notice the message, then I respond. I use quite a few. I use Telegram. That's kind of the most normal chat platform. However, I would really love there to be an open source solution like Signal that was widely accepted. I am, I don't like typing my conspiracy theories into my friend's chat in Telegram, <laughs> knowing that one day they're going to spill out onto the public internet. And I'm sure it's going to happen. And I'm really uncomfortable with that. I'm, I trust other people's scrutiny of Signal. <laughs> Um, and I've been on, I've, I've got Signal installed and, you know, over the last couple of months, a few of my friends have popped up on there because of the WhatsApp changing, the terms changing. Even a carpenter, a close friend of mine who's a carpenter, which I think is some kind of watershed moment. And I've started chatting to them on that, but I've resisted installing WhatsApp. Um, and it's caused us all kinds of problems, you know, from official kind of, getting in touch with people at school to like social circles at, and other places. Um, it's a real sacrifice not using it. Um, but apart from that, we use Mattermost at work now. That's replaced IRC, although I'm still an IRC for some things. And I use Riot IM 
which I think is now Element. Yeah. I spent quite a lot of time messing around with Matrix back in the Linux voice days and set up some bridges. But none of this is new. I remember the telepathy framework in KDE, we used to, that one of the best things about it was you could use it to bridge all of these things. Alan mentions ICQ and I've still got an ICQ account as well. And then Jabba before that, they used to use Jabba to bridge to Google's chat, whatever that was called at the time, and which became Hangouts, which has then been deprecated. It's a shame, isn't it? Um, I guess we all kind of keep fingers in pies in the hope that something were there when something takes off and we're not out of the loop, but it's complicated. Okay, so ironically, now that you said AOL Messenger, or maybe you didn't, uh, yeah. but now I've just remembered that. Uh, yeah, I probably did have an ICQ one for work. And... Jabber, yeah. And MSN. Shit. Okay. Well, I haven't logged, oh, yes, I haven't logged into any of those in so long that they probably don't exist anymore. Yeah. Well, I used to use Pigeon Game before it, G A I M. Um, and yeah, I used that for MSN, IRC, and Google Chat all in one. And it was really handy to have it all there. But then everything went mobile and, you know, Slack and all the rest of it. I mean, I use Slack for the Jupyter Broadcasting stuff. Telegram mostly, WhatsApp for my family. But people will be screaming, oh, Matrix, Matrix solves all your problems. You just have to bridge this to that and everything's fine. Well, it fucking doesn't really work very well from what I've seen. Just today, I saw someone in a Telegram group rejoin because they'd been kicked out because their bridge had somehow fucked up. It's, you know, I'm sure that we'll get loads of feedback saying, oh, no, it's perfect. I use it for this and that and that. But well, prove me wrong, but it, it just doesn't feel like there is one solution to bridge it all together into one handy, usable way. And you just have to have loads of apps installed or tabs open or whatever to get all your messages from all the people. Because that, that's kind of what I do for a living uh, among the many hats that I have to wear. One of them is people wrangling. And I have long since learned that you go to where the people are. Jim Salter, for example, from Two and a Half Admins, he wants to use fucking Twitter DMs, which is like the worst <laughs> possible way. And so we have a group on there for me, him, and Alan. Alan's really just cool and laid back as he is about everything, and he's just got everything installed. Um, and so we use Twitter DMs. On his Windows PC, yeah? Yeah, on, on his Windows PC, yeah, obviously. Well, one of his uh, BSD fucking monstrosities. But you have to go where people are. And you can't try and talk to someone, you know, you can't say, right, come on to Telegram and talk to me there because that's where I am. You have to go to IRC or Slack or Discord or... Depends how popular you are, Joe. <laughs> well, true, true. But yeah, we haven't even mentioned Discord, which is massive and seemingly everyone is there, but I just have resisted. I, I technically am on a couple of servers, I think, but I just never, ever go there. Bring back the days of email when you used to send an email and get a reply a couple of minutes later and then reply to that and so on and so on. Yeah, and then just CC everyone instead of blind CC and so everyone's email addresses get shared. I remember back in the days of Google Chat, as it was uh, way back then, I think, it used XMPP, which was like mm. a nice open protocol and it, yeah, it integrated well into to Pigeon and Game and things like that. And then Google shut it down or locked it down and then you couldn't use it anymore. And so has that pattern been repeated for every other chat platform ever, pretty much? Yeah, you're right. They all want to be their own silos, which is what creates the problem. It would be wonderful if Matrix evolves one day to like a single click install that handles bridges. But I bet those as soon as that becomes popular, the bridges, they'll never be able to keep up with whatever API, API changes those platforms do. Yeah, exactly. 
So I think that we're just stuck using a million different messaging platforms. And uh, yeah, it won't be long before people ask us, when are you going to go on Clubhouse? <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. I recently moved our website over to Linode, and I'm really happy with it. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Let's do some feedback then. Daniel wrote to us, I just wanted to give my two cents about the Debian question. Namely, I think they should just stay as they are and stick to their guns regarding being Libra by default. Debian is not a newbie distro and doesn't need to be. There are a ton of much better options for newbies and the best of course, being Ubuntu. And then a big old thing about how grateful Daniel is for Ubuntu and how it's the best distro by far. And uh, fair enough, you seem to be very happy with Ubuntu, Daniel, and I'm very happy for you. On a similar note, Einar and a lot of other people said something along the lines of, Debian has done what you suggest for years in the unofficial non-free images. They come with firmware, and the non-free and contrib repos are on by default in your sources.list file after install. They are a bit hard to find if you look at the front page of debian.org, but so are all the other downloads. I usually duck, duck, go if I need it, and then it pops up at the number one suggestion. The problem is you have to know it exists, and then he links to it. And I, I thought we had talked about this. I think we were talking about it as if we knew about it, and maybe we didn't specifically mention it. But yes, the, the point that I was making is they should make more of those non-free images, because that's how I would install Debian on a laptop if I was going to. And so, yeah, I think that was just a slight oversight there that we didn't mention that. But I think the consensus seems to be that Debian should just stay as is. And I don't know, I can see the argument, but it's just not what I would do. Haley wrote to us, I keep hearing you all talk about how Firefox is dying and you don't seem to think people supporting Mozilla with donations is the answer. I want to challenge this idea. There are plenty of projects that have been saved or supported from the get-go through donations alone. For instance, I support EFF with a monthly contribution because I believe very strongly in the work they do. And the only reason I don't see this happening with Mozilla is they haven't been campaigning for the money. I decided to put my money where my mouth is, and I signed up to make a small monthly contribution to Mozilla. So why not encourage your listeners to all chip in a little something if this is the web browser we all prefer to use? It's worked for other projects, and I bet it could work here too. If Firefox folds, I don't know what I'll do. I guess Emacs can do everything else. It will have to become a web browser too. I think the problem here is that Mozilla would have to say we are going to concentrate on just doing the browser or maybe and thunderbird as well although that's somewhat independent now but they would have to say we're going to knock it off with all of the other bullshit that we waste money on before i personally was willing to give them a fucking penny quite frankly i think 
what you're saying is pretty much what I think as well. Like I would like the vast majority of it to go to the browser, but I do think that they also need to support open standards on the web, making sure that Google doesn't have the run of any standards bodies, things like that. So I think it can be towards an open web. Yes, maybe there are some crazy projects that are a bit out there which aren't required, like the latest one with the open AI and stuff. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yes, maybe. But, you know, if I want to give a donation to the web and keeping it open, then, yeah, I think there should be maybe sections of the donation, maybe like the slider that you used to get in the old Ubuntu donation one. I think that's still there last time I looked. Yeah, it is. I don't think any of that will work. I think Firefox needs to be forked from the Mozilla Foundation with people who who are aligned with what we want from Firefox. I don't think the Mozilla Foundation can change enough. I don't know. Isn't that just going to be another LibreOffice, though, and Firefox will have the mindshare still? I agree. It could be, but I, I just don't think it'll exist otherwise. Fork it and take the name. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, yeah. Yeah, good idea, yeah. Christopher writes to us, I just had to tell you all that you are so very terribly wrong not to mourn the demise of progressive web apps in Firefox, and then three exclamation marks. My argument for them is, I think, in keeping with the philosophy of many Linux users, freedom of choice. Progressive web apps did have their uses. I worked on developing one and my colleagues on many more that had real use cases. And then he told us about how they're cross-platform and the many advantages that they have for an application that they were developing and deploying to people with different devices. And he basically says it boils down to blame Apple for this. They didn't want progressive web apps because that would undercut their app store monopoly that they have on iOS. And that doesn't seem like a wacky conspiracy theory to me. That seems pretty reasonable. He says, don't hate on PWAs, hate on Apple, who have done nothing to support the implementation of a very useful and freeing technology that could have seen a lot less fender lock-in had it been allowed to flourish. App stores suck when they jail both users and developers. I think that's a, a good point, actually. I certainly, after we had that conversation, I thought about some good examples of things that had become apps that could have been perfectly well suited to being a PWA, um, and I kind of missed the fact that that didn't happen. But maybe it's never going to happen. Maybe we should have just ignored, they should have ignored what Apple was doing and carried on regardless. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And if you're not in a position to support us financially, that's totally fine. Listening is enough. But maybe tell someone about the show. Spread the word about it, because that's the best way to grow shows, is through word of mouth. If you like it and there's someone who you think might like it, send them a link or tell them about us. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments. Quickly analyze the performance of your Linux servers in real time with customizable dashboards and troubleshoot Linux issues in seconds with a unified view of your metrics, traces, and logs all in one place. With integrations for over 400 technologies, you can even use Datadog to monitor key Linux source metrics alongside data from the rest of your stack to get full visibility into the health and performance of your entire infrastructure. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late night Linux. Start your free trial. 
Create one dashboard and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late night Linux. At the recent late night Linux meetup, I got talking to Chris Pierce about Chrome OS devices and how to get Linux scoring on them. And uh, we ended up talking for ages and ages. And I said, right, we should definitely record this properly and stick it on the show. So I spoke to him about a week ago as you hear this. And let's hear that now. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. So just a little bit about yourself then. You run a small IT firm in London. Yeah, um, I'm in southeast London, like Hither Green, sort of near Lewisham. And I run a residential IT support business, which has become busier over the last year. Standard stuff, upgrade laptops, whack an SSD in, improve Wi-Fi, and then maybe go a bit deeper if necessary, optimize networks with a new router or maybe some traffic shaping if necessary. But I also have a passion for Linux as well. Um, Obviously, most of my clients use Windows or Mac OS, but I do have one or two. I've got a a guy with an NVIDIA Optimus laptop that we've had lots of fun with over the years. But um, yeah, Linux is also like a side passion as well. And I run all my, my machines and my family's machines all run some kind of Linux or they've got Pis or, you know, it's definitely our workflow as it is. Right. And so we got talking at the recent meetup, the community meetup on Mumble, about Chromebooks and Chromeboxes, Chrome OS devices, let's say. Mm. And I said, we've got to have a chat about this on the main show. So you, it sounds like I've got quite a lot of experience of this, of taking Chrome OS devices and putting proper Linux on them. Yeah, I think so. When the Chromebox came out, So there was an Asus one, which is the one I got, but there was also Samsung and an HP one. And they're all based on that same CPU, the C720, which was probably the the first really successful mainstream Chromebook, the Acer one. So they're all Haswell 2955U CPUs. And I had read online that um, the Chromebox was great because it could be got fairly cheaply and it came with a Visa mount. So you could whack it on the back of a TV and you could modify the BIOS. You could. There's a right protect screw inside. You take the right protect screw off and you can flash a custom BIOS and run Linux or Libra Elec or, you know, Batisera, various versions of Linux, more for it to be like an HTPC. So I never ran Chrome OS in it. So originally, the BIOS that you could flash was legacy only. And also you could dual boot Chrome OS with what they called, I think, a bootstab or a rewrite legacy. But the best compatibility would be to completely wipe out the firmware rather than modify it so that you had a legacy C BIOS. And then you could just boot from USB. Yeah, which is what I had on my C720, which I've now given to my mum. That has got C BIOS on it, which is pretty basic, but I've managed to make it so that you don't have to press Control L or whatever. It just boots straight into Linux for her. Mm. And it's been absolutely fine with Gallium OS. But we were talking about, like, it's not necessarily stuck with Gallium OS these days. Yeah, so the Chromebox, because it's uh, basically a mini PC, the hardware inside is not that complex, really. It's just a Haswell motherboard. It's got a couple of SODIMs on it. Because there's no input device other than USB ones or a screen or a touchscreen or any of the things Chromebooks have, then yeah, that's fine. But the Chromebooks, 
require a bit more work basically um if you go to so gallium os is you know as you said it's uh specifically for chromebooks and chrome boxes tailored to the hardware and then issues on github will get opened for that specific subset of hardware because most chromebooks a lot of them have the same motherboard that's slightly tweaked and they're based around certain cpus and chipsets because that makes it easier for google to deploy Chrome OS of them in kind of waves of releases. And so for ages, basically, for a lot of Chromebooks, if you wanted everything working, then Gallium was really your only choice because Upstream wouldn't have full support. So I've got two Chromebooks, one's with my mother now, and I've got one here. I've got a Acer C200 and an Acer R11, and both of them are bay trail um cpus i think and you didn't get sound on anything other than gallium out of the box it would just give you a null dummy output and people have sort of tried i think if you're running arch and you kept up to date then it would start working but it wasn't reliable and i opened a launchpad issue or i think i think i opened something on the ubuntu mate forums and then someone pointed me to a launchpad bug and I just kept on top of it for ages. But then I think when 2010 came out, I got an email that just said, this is basically working now, almost. So as of now, both of them have working sound and you can run Ubuntu. I think you can actually run Ubuntu 2004, but I've gone for 2010 on, on the R11 because you basically just have to pull a deb a newer Deb than came out with um, 2010, I think for some kind of ALSA config. But then that makes the sound chip work. The only thing that's not working, I think, is jack detection when you plug and unplug a set of headphones. But otherwise, everything is detected. Whereas previously, you would have to make some, like a lot of people would use like a USB sound card to get sound or, or things like that, which just wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah, not on a laptop. No, certainly not. And I've, I like Gallium. It's fine. It's basically a respin of Zubuntu with specific Chrome OS device tweaks. Like, obviously, the, the function keys are labeled just with logos on a Chromebook. Mm. So there's a custom uh, XKBD overlay that um, just is set up out of the box um stuff like that and just like quality of life tweaks so that you've installed it and it's ready to go but basically a lot of those things have now made it upstream so on the c200 i'm still running gallium but on the r11 i've installed pop os and it's actually great like i was genuinely surprised because even gallium has some github issues that are open that say if you flip it around into touchscreen mode, into tablet mode, the keyboard doesn't get disabled unless you run a custom bash script that tells it to disable or <laughs> stuff like that. Like, not ideal. Yeah. But with Pop! OS, apart from the jack detection issue, and, and once you've installed that deb, you flip it around into tablet mode, the keyboard's disabled, it auto-rotates, and essentially, like, it's a really good, reasonable Linux two-in-one that you can then flip around and use as a laptop yeah and you can pick them up pretty cheaply now can't you yeah i mean i've got the one with two gigs of ram and 32 gigs of storage so some of them have 16 gigs which is okay like but obviously pop i can't remember how much disk space is taken up in a fresh install of pop os but 
you, I think it'd be pretty tight if you had only 16 gigs, maybe. Yeah, but then if you're giving it to a relative who is just your average user, all they really need is a browser, mostly. Yeah, well, actually, what I was going to say is what, like, obviously, this isn't my work. Like, I, I, I didn't make Gallium OS or these custom biases, and things have moved on since the the CBIOS, legacy BIOS that used to run on these um, machines. There's a guy called Mr. Chromebox. I, I don't know who he is in real life, but he has a website, mrchromebox.tech. And he has really like gone to town on BIOSes for these devices. So he's managed to create a full EFI BIOS that has like menus and you can set the boot order. And by doing that, you lose the ability to boot Chrome OS, but increases the hardware compatibility massively and you can boot windows and even if you're ambitious macOS on a c720 if it's got an i3 which i think was only released in the states widely that particular model but he's got catalina um you have to upgrade the ssd which is not possible on most chromebooks but um yeah anyway the c200 that i had i given it to my mum, and she was running gallium os from the emmc and then she WhatsApped me a picture of a very sick looking verbose boot. I told her to press escape and it was basically repeatedly trying to mount the EMMC and failing. And then eventually it would just say IO error and then just lock up. And so I took it back from her and I live booted Gallium. And yeah, when I went into GNOME discs, it just threw a UDEV error every time I tried to mount the disc. And I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure this soldered on shitty EMMC drivers run out of its, <laughs> it's like terabytes yeah. written for its life. So I thought I was going to have to throw it in the bin because when you booted from USB or you booted from an SD card, which you can, it would still try and mount that faulty detected EMMC on a loop. So the boot time would be ages and eventually it would give up and then boot from the USB. And then I came across this Reddit thread with someone with a C300, which is the same innards with a bigger screen. And Mr. Chromebox, he's really active on Reddit. He popped up and, and, and he, some people had said, like, if you pass a grub parameter, you can blacklist certain hardware and certain buses. And if you're lucky, your Chromebook, the EMMC drive will be on the PCI bus and it'll have its own sort of separate addressing. So you can just blacklist that address and everything will work, but the EMMC drive won't try to mount. Well, I tried that, and it killed the USB ports, and it was obviously on the USB bus. Right. And someone else had had that too, and they put that in Reddit. They were like, yeah, well, I tried that. And then he pops up and says, well, if you ask me nicely, then I'll send you a custom-compiled EFI BIOS that bypasses just that faulty EMMC chip. And I was like, this is amazing. So I PM'd him and 24 hours later, he sent me a Dropbox link. And it was a bit weird. I never pushed him on this, but he said, here's the link. Don't share it with anyone. And it's gone in 24 hours. I don't know what the reason for that is. Maybe, I, I suspect it's not actually that insidious. I think it's because if you flash it by accident, then that's a fuck up. But <laughs> If you specifically want it, like for me, yeah, then yeah, you, you you know, but it's perfect because then basically it turns it into something more akin to a Raspberry Pi type device. And I gave it back to my mum. I put a micro SD um, that's A1 rated and I installed Gallium to it. And then I put the snap of Chromium on because she doesn't update 
as much as he should, but it's fine. And I was going to throw that in the bin and he just did it completely for free for no reason really, apart from that I just mentioned it on Reddit. That's really cool. But unfortunately, the more modern CoreMOS devices are not very well supported anymore. Is that right? Yeah. So basically anything with a trail in the name, because they're all sort of Intel, they're what replaced the atoms and they call them Celerons, but a lot of the architecture is is similar to the older atoms. So anything that's like well, so Haswell and Broadwell and stuff like that, that runs fine. Bay Trail, that also runs fine. But yeah, anything that has lake, like Apollo Lake, Gemini Lake, there's a table on Mr. Chromebox's website and also on the Gallium OS website of hardware compatibility. And you'll find either the those newer devices, literally there is no custom firmware available at all yet, or there is, but there's fundamental hardware that doesn't work in anything other than Chrome OS because the way that it's linked. So it's a shame, but there are a hell of a lot of Chrome OS devices because they get end of life. And at the time after five years, that it does give you another option to run something that is being updated and is a full operating system. Yeah, exactly. And so if you want to get hold of cheap used Chromebooks that have been used in enterprise or even just privately or whatever, you can make them live on. But you really got to do your research beforehand. You can't just buy any old Chromebook and hope that it's going to work. You've got to look at the compatibility and make sure that you're going to get a proper distro running with full functionality. Yeah, that's it. And that's why, you know, those two resources are so good because Gallium OS is the hardware compatibility table and uh, the Mr. Chrome box table of hardware. It's quite easy to tell. If you have to take the back off and take a screw out, then you're probably golden. Whereas the newer ones, you still have to take the back off, but it's a much more involved process to overwrite the BIOS chip inside. I was reading about it earlier today because I've not done it on any newer devices. You have to boot it into developer mode and then you have to hit the power button in a certain sequence to prove that you really, really want to do this. Whereas if you, on the old one, you're basically removing a write protect screw. And then once it's removed, the BIOS chip is just writable. And all you, all you do then is you boot into developer mode in Chrome OS. You do control alt T, which brings up a shell. Then you type crush and that gives you the ability to W get a bash script and run it. And then Mr. Chromebox has written like a, interactive menu so you can either flash efi bios which means you can only ever boot a full fat linux windows macOS operating system it won't boot chrome os or you can modify the existing bios that google provides to allow you to dual boot but i think as you said to me joe the problem with the rewrite legacy is it has a few more bugs so for example if the battery runs flat you lose the ability to boot at all and you have to recover on some models. So I've got a lot more mileage out of the full EFI BIOS because you get more hardware compatibility and it's more stable. So I ran my Chromebox as a router on a stick, for example, for quite a long time on OpenWRT with a smart switch. And that's because it was just an x86 box with some hardware in and everything worked. And you need that because if you have a power cut, if your router doesn't automatically reboot, then people are going to be annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thanks for telling me about all of this stuff. And um, people will have to join the next meetup. Hopefully you can be around and answer some questions and talk a bit more about that. But yeah, uh, if people want to get hold of you then, what's the best place? Email is good. I'm taking a bit of a break from Twitter, although I do check it from time to time, but they're both very easy to remember. So my email is chris at hithergreenit.com and my website is hithergreenit.com, has a blog on and stuff like that, which gives you an idea of what I do. And my Twitter is just hithergreenit. Cool. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes and uh, maybe speak to you again sometime. Thanks. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about what's been going on in the news. Until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.